0: In the first two seasons, the show featured guests from over 60 different countries, and will continue down that path, because it is imperative that we cherish the differences, and we can only do that by getting out and journeying into unknown frontiers, whether it be physically or simply through conversation, sharing lovely experiences, and saluting the tenacious and resilient guests. We have a brilliant, brilliant episode for you today, with an incredible guest, oboist, conductor, teacher, Nicholas Daniel OBE, joins the show. Nicholas Daniel has been long acknowledged as one of the world's greatest oboists and is one of Britain's best known musicians. He has significantly enlarged the repertoire for his instrument with the commissioning of hundreds of new works. He dedicates his life to music in many varied ways. He records and broadcasts widely and has been music director of the Leicester International Music Festival and Lunchtime Series for many years. He's a highly sought after teacher, was professor of oboe at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, and has also taught in the United States and in Germany. He won the BBC Young Musician of the Year in 1980, was awarded the Queen's Medal for Music in 2011, cited as having made an outstanding contribution to the musical life of the nation, and at the 2020 birthday honors, he was appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire. It's a long list of accolades, and I have to assure you that he's got a personality to match. We were thrilled to have our first oboist on the show. And he's got an incredibly busy life, and he generously gave us his time from this car. That happens a lot with guests. We take him any way we can get him, and thankful for Nicholas for finding some free time for us. On today's episode, he talks about how he first found himself playing the oboe, and how it was a family member who initially guided him towards the unique instrument. We also chat about the challenges that come with conducting, and also how he develops trust with the students especially when stepping foot into a new country as a professor, and he remarks about the importance of listening. And for Nicholas, one of the primary tools that he uses is his ability to be an empathetic leader. Like I said, wonderful personality, and the conversation was just absolutely stellar. Smiling the whole time. He's a great storyteller, and you can hear the passion in his voice for how much he cares about music and and spreading the joy of music. And before we bring him out, we're going to play a sound of Nicholas performing the first movement from Mozart's Oboe Concerto at the BBC Proms. Thrilled for everyone to meet him, so let's go ahead and welcome on oboist, teacher, and conductor, Nicholas Daniel OBE, and let's learn.
1: There, oh god, I've got stuck in a traffic jam. <laughs> never mind, never mind, never mind. There we go.
0: Yeah, where, whereabouts are you driving right now?
1: Well, I'm driving from where I lived into uh London, into Regent's Park. Um, because like I, I find a place to put this, like I told you, my uh, my daughter is uh appearing in
0: Legally Blonde, the musical. <laughs> Fantastic, that's that's so cool. I know. And, uh, now, I appreciate you doing it as you're driving. I've, I've talked to many people as they're in their car, but this is the first time <laughs> driving down the well, road. Well, it's,
1: it's not; it's only very slowly moving, actually, so it doesn't really matter. But anyway, I hope that's okay. It's, well, <laughs> I actually
0: like it more than my regular interviews because this adds to the excitement.
1: All right, hold on a second, and I'll just... Uh, <laughs> sorry, you're in the footwell. That foot was a
0: bit ambitious. This, hey. is, this is incredible. I've never seen a camera view underneath the pedal before. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, right. Very good where did it start where did it begin what were your earliest musical experiences
1: my parents were churchgoers mm-hmm. and so from you know very young we were kind of forced to go to church on Sundays and then I discovered there was a little choir in this church and um, even more amazing that they actually paid you to sing in the church services mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is true of um, of churches that are which is almost all churches in this country are members of the, the Royal schools of church music um, So, and you get paid a bit more for weddings and funerals too. I mean, it was a bit weird seeing at a funeral age, seven years old, but uh, at the same time uh, it was, it was a great thing. And then we moved to um, a town called Hitchin where they have a big church and a big choir to my mom. So um, she's been kind of, she was kind of like the subconscious architect of, of so many different things. Um, And um, she, didn't really know quite what she was doing, but she had an idea that it might be good because her sister had sent my cousin to, to uh, King's College, Cambridge, which is a famous choir. So basically she sort of thought, well, I think Nikki should go and do that too. And for, I don't know why she thought that because we're a completely non-musical family. I mean, I'd started playing the piano, but it was just amazing how singing took me into a world of serious music which and because then eventually I ended up going to Salisbury Cathedral School and the thing about those schools is that you you actually do perform some of the most serious music ever written and it's music from the earliest written music plain song to the most recent recently composed commissions which I always found the most exciting thing and still do so in a way and the, the funny thing about the oboe my instrument is that the range of the oboe is almost exactly the same as a boy's voice and um, so when I, when I ended up sort of playing more, it was a natural thing to just transpose it onto the oboe. And in fact, I, I didn't realize how much work was required to play the oboe because I, I did so well with it really quickly. But then there comes a time when you just have to put in those hours. You have to put in those hours of long tones and scales and technical exercises and building a repertoire and building a voice. Um, and so I kind of took it rather for granted and then all of a sudden one day my teacher just said You do know you're not doing enough practice, don't you? And I was like, oh really? <laughs> I wasn't doing any basically. I was just singing away on my oboe but yeah, you know any any of us that are professionals. There's a there is a sort of um, There's a sort of several thousand hour rule Which is you have to do several thousand hours of the right kind of practice in order to get to the stand you need to fulfill your potential so that's what i did it's <laughs> a long story short
0: do you remember yeah. why you chose the oboe because i know that when i was first introduced to music as a child oboe wasn't one of the standard instruments that first came about and it was only one that i learned later so do you remember why it was that attracted you to the oboe
1: well i didn't know anything about it i just did it because my grandmother said i should and my granny was um was very was it, she wasn't a sort of um forceful character she was just very very important in our lives very much loved and very um very special person and and actually my granny just said the boy must play the oboe and my mum said well she used a very rude word actually she said what the flips an oboe (laughs) nobody knew what it was but for some reason my grandmother just thought that that was the thing I, i have to i'm i'm so sorry that she's not still around because I could have asked her, what on earth made you choose the oboe? But um, it's, a, it's a funny story. But it's funny that also that instrument just fits the range of a boy's voice exactly as well, as well. So as I say, there was this natural sort of leaning into doing it from having been a singer. I still think of myself as a singer in some ways, of course, without
0: the diva qualities. <laughs>
1: some would say I have very much got them. <laughs>
0: from singing to the oboe, and then to conducting. So what were some of the challenging yeah. aspects of transitioning from a musician into conducting?
1: Well, uh, thank you for asking that. Um, the thing is, conducting is is a, uh, such a multi led skill, and I have a feeling that um, it's very, very rarely that you're instinctively good at being a conductor very young. There are some. There are some who are like that, just phenomenal sort of... Intellect, but for me, um, it was because of three things. Really, it's first of all having what I th- I think is a really good sense of rhythm and and pitch, um, and being able to play the piano well, uh, so I can score read. But it's also about having been a teacher for many many years, a professor. Like um, when I, I taught at Indiana, I was the first ever British oboist to be appointed in an American university music school. Um, and s- things like that, teaching, and also particularly making chamber music. So playing in small groups from 2 to 5 to 8 to 12, 13, um, where there's no conductor. And so you have to um, you have to find a way, if you have a vision of the piece, you have to find a way to persuade people that your vision is the right way, or to listen to what they've got to say, and learn from their vision of the piece. and Find a way to make things blend. So, um, and with teaching, it's very much a question of making making the very best of what everybody's got. So, when you come to an orchestra and you stand in front of them, you can have a a plan, but then you've also got to be prepared to listen and learn to what from what they've already done. It's a great famous old orchestra. They may have a way of doing it which has certain things to to sell it to you. So, I think it's a combination of of having made wonderful chamber music for many, many, many years. I think it's um, also believing in my, my pulse, my inner pulse, um, and knowing that it's reliable. I think it's um, having worked with people who want to hear what I've got to say about music and about Things and uh, to get things right. And it's also because c- contemporary music and new music is so important to me. It's having worked with so many different composers personally, and and working with them and finding what they want and how composers um, learn from and teach you from what they've written. So I, I have a very text-based system that very rarely strays too far from what the composer said that makes me very uncomfortable so yeah those things i think all of those things have led to me um being you know being what i hope is it a conductor that is someone that is useful for the players to help them feel comfortable and uh relaxed and also then to find
0: a, a communal structure communal way forward for us to play well, you use the word "comfortable" there, as far as having the musicians be comfortable. How about comfort when it comes to teaching? How do you acclimatize to a new country? For example, when you taught in Indiana, I know you've also taught in Germany. So when you're yeah. in a country for the first time and you work with people from a completely different culture, how do you make them feel comfortable?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I, I mean, it's so instinctive to do that to me. Um, I'm not a. I'm. I'm. I'm not someone who challenges for the sake of it. So. I always try to to allow people to understand when they've done something well um, to understand how they did that um, and why it was pleasing to them and if I found something pleasing that they didn't find pleasing that's very interesting to me so sometimes it's about finding um, a a cross-section of of things it's it's also knowing What they want from from what they're doing. So I mean obviously if I'm teaching in a foreign language with a translator or even just Teaching German. I do speak German um, uh, I've been a professor in Germany for 20 years now Um, Obviously that's partly about making sure that they understand you and that you understand them But I think it's it's actually as much as anything about listening. I'm become more and more convinced that the quality of one's listening is absolutely one of the most important things in life and you look at an actor like someone maybe judy dench or or um, benedict cumberbatch or uh, ian mckellen and you'll notice that it's not necessarily about what they say or the way they say it it's about how they absorb themselves into the process of what's going on in a scene or in a play by the quality of their listening so i would say that in teaching. It's, it's a question of not just listening, but also about really feeling so I think of myself as being quite empathic um, So I will try to understand. I mean this has been a lifelong challenge because the oboe is very natural to me So I, I don't necessarily have the same or maybe have different challenges to those that my students will have so starting to sort of understand why they can't do what they want to do um, is, is really a question of like feeling why it's going wrong or why something isn't working and then putting myself in their position and then finding a way forward with my own technical knowledge. So I think it's about empathy as much as anything else. I must say, I, I absolutely love working with people from other countries, and in lockdown, um, I was very lucky to be working with people in, in Brazil, in China. Um, literally all over the, all over the world. I mean, in, in a class situation on Zoom, and also in, in uh, individual lessons, and I, I found that absolutely wonderful and really moving. I mean, it was amazing to go into people's houses in Brazil, and you know to see. Some, many of them had, had perfectly normal-looking apartments and things, and some of them had corrugated tin roofs and chickens wandering around and, and things like that because they're, they're, not, they're not sort of middle-class, upper-class people. They're, they're just normal people who have to be amazingly good at playing the oboe. So <laughs> it was wonderful. And, I mean, I, I'm, I'm crazy about China, and I'm, I'm so sorry about the state they're in at the moment. They're having another horrible time. But um, I have many very fine Chinese students. And it's interesting because um, I found that working with Chinese students has challenges, of course, but it also has a massive advantage in that they don't come with a sort of um, pre-registered agenda of, of what's right and wrong in terms of musical discussion. So they've got less they've got less sort of baggage, musical baggage and I find that really very moving I and mean, of course it means that you have to give them some of them, I mean you can't generalize about a country the size of China, but some of them you have to give them a bit of a musical education, a sort of Um, like particularly in terms of understanding how religion plays a part in in music, um, in phrasing, so that even the word amen for instance has a has a phrase, amen has a as a phrasing which is important to so much later music which may not even be religious music um and then it's really fun to tell them for instance that the word amen is is actually related to the sanskrit word arm which is of course the universal meditation sound so it's it's interesting to to um to work with that and if they're uncomfortable about religion like some I found some people who from non-Christian countries can be uncomfortable with Christian religion. It's important to respect their religion or their non-religion and find a way to somehow spread that interest about it and make it less solely polarized on Christianity. But that's, uh, yeah, so that's an example in a way of it. I, I think that I'm lucky to have been exposed to so many different people. I mean, it's fascinating working in America because our instrument, the oboe, is is very very different uh, there in terms of the technique of playing it. The actual technique of playing it is is really different. So I had to know what I was dealing with there, and I had to know how to um, how to cope with the differences and make sure I didn't well you know, upset people's own way of doing it too much. It was was tricky, but we found some very good common ground and it was actually really fun in the end.
0: (laughs) Fascinating. Well, I admire your empathy, and I I think of the phrase seek first to understand, then to be understood. I think that is totally applicable to what you're doing, and I admire that so much. Music has taken you you. all around the world. You mentioned the places in which you've taught, you've performed, you've been to many, many places. As you look back on your career thus far, what are the events that stand out and, and the ones that make you the most proud? And you, you still wake up and you still think back and you're like, you know, that, that was a great day.
1: Well, it's funny. Sometimes it's about um, taking music from my own country uh, to foreign countries and finding that it has an audience there, um, which is with, particularly with a composer like Ray Fawn Williams, who's, um, celebrating the 150th year of his birth this year, um, it's it's actually remarkable that a composer with such an English streak can be so um, well received in America, in Japan, in South Korea, in in uh, you know Australia. Not so not so unusual in Australia, but um, it is it is a very interesting thing because it's a particularly English and modal things. So, some of the great experiences I've had have been taking that idea, like the British music that I play, into foreign countries. Another thing that's that's wonderful is when I've been lucky enough to play music that's been written especially for me in countries across the world, and to find that there are people who are mesmerised by by the language of of music in in a different form, a form they perhaps haven't heard before. So um, it's, it's funny. I, I think in the end, when I find that I've pleased a composer, so a, a living composer, when I find that I've made a living composer happy by what I've done, that is the most profound thing for me. So I remember very strongly playing at um, Benjamin Britten's home in Suffolk and Snape at Mortings, playing uh, a concerto by John Woolrich, who's a great friend of mine and an extremely fine composer. And it was funny because he came on stage. He's a man of few words anyway, but he came on stage at the end and he just, he just took my hands in his and just held them for about three seconds and looked into my eyes. And at that moment I knew that I'd done something right. And it was, it was so many of the unforgettable moments of my performing career have actually been on that stage in the concert hall that Benjamin Britten built. Um, it was, it was there that I first met Rostropovich and he kissed my grandmother on the lips and told her I was a phenomenon. (laughs) She looked a bit shocked actually. (laughs) Things like that. So yeah, but, um, it's always, it's always wonderful when you go to a country that like somewhere like perhaps South Korea that has, now i think one of the great music audiences of anywhere in the world um and you can go you can go you go and do your concert and it, they have a sort of incredible reception when you do things there and then actually you're asked to go into the uh, foyer and there's like two or three hundred people waiting there to talk to you and uh, sign the, i mean that's not that's not that it's not that often that happens in the UK, I can tell you. But it's very it's very interesting. Korea, they've gone crazy for classical music. And my goodness, I think probably two of the greatest people I've taught in my whole teaching career have both come from South Korea. One especially, who I think of as the... I mean, he's he's the potential future of the instrument, in my opinion. Um, remarkable and very modest person, but he's... It's just it's fascinating to, to play there because it's such a different culture. And I've seen in, also in Japan the respect they have for artists. And um, I mean, that respect is, of course, dangerous in itself because you can become um, slightly, you can think of yourself as slightly godlike if you're not too careful. <laughs> yeah. So I always like to come back to maybe to the north of England, to Yorkshire, where you were brought up for a good old dose of, of British um, down to earth grounding.
0: No no place better. No place better. 2012, you were awarded the Queen's Medal for Music. And then recently, in 2020, you were awarded Officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE. Yeah. Uh, I got to know about the experience because I know when I when I've chatted with people who have the similar experience, they the, how the they received the letter. It's from a very official-looking thing, and it's almost like an ominous letter that comes in the mail, like "Oh, what yes. did I do wrong?" And you said, "So what was like? What was the letter Exactly.
1: What I was, thought it was a parking. I thought it was a parking ticket to start <laughs> with. <laughs> well, the thing is that the the Queen's Medal for Music and the Honors system are two very different things. So, the Honors system is is um, decided by a certain committee and the the Queen's Medal for Music is, is a standalone once a year event um, and so what happened was I had a phone call I was up in in, in Yorkshire actually in Richmond um, mm. giving a concert the reception was atrocious and I saw that Peter Maxwell Davis Sir Peter Maxwell Davis the composer had tried to ring me and I thought it was maybe because he was quite a sort of vociferous campaigner on music education and various other things which, which I am too and I thought maybe he wanted my help so I found a place on the, on a sort of incredibly rainy evening with sort of the wind and rain blasting into my face and managed to get through to him and um, he asked me whether I'd heard of the Queen's Medal for music and I said well actually I have because I was there when Sir Colin Davis was presented with it by the queen and I met the queen on that occasion as a matter of fact in a sort of lineup. And um, he said, w- w- would you be prepared to accept it? And I said, I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just said, what? I said, but, well, of course, I'd be absolutely honored. And he said, you can't say anything to anyone. You can't say anything to anyone about this. But um, congratulations. And I said, oh, Max, that is just the most amazing thing. And of course, I got in the car with my with my now ex-wife and our flute player. And I said, I've got to tell you something. <laughs> 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 I can't not tell you. So I told them, they were like, oh my God. <laughs> I said, no, you must tell anybody. We didn't even tell our children. Um, and it was one of those things. The thing is, it is it is decided by a committee of musicians. Um, so, it and it, it is, I mean, it is the most wonderful thing because you get an actual medals, a solid silver medal, which is, presented to you and I, uh, by the Queen herself and I had a, a half hour private meeting with the Queen. Actually, it was a wonderful moment because Peter Maxwell Davis had just finished his Ninth Symphony and we walked in together. So I, I walked in first and you presented the Queen and you have to remember to call her... Um, 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 not ma'am, and you have to remember to bow in the right order. And then it's after that, it's all very, it's all very normal. But, well, not, nothing's normal about meeting the Queen, but, I mean, just it's, it's more normal sitting in a chair and talking. And then Pete, uh, Peter Maxwell Davis handed her um, a carrier bag from one of our supermarkets. <laughs> and um, she said, oh, hey, Max, what's this? I said, and he said, well, it's the manuscript of my ninth symphony. I'd like to present it to you as a gift. And she said, oh, how lovely. She opened it, and I saw that it's dedicated to her. And actually, they were really quite good friends. Um, and Max had been through a terrible thing with his husband, who was, who, Colin, who was alcoholic and had behaved rather badly at various different royal events. And, but then they'd split up at this time, so I think she felt very sorry for him. But also, they genuinely were friends. Anyway, she was, the Queen was sitting in a, in a Chippendale chair and turning the pages of this manuscript, cle- clearly reading the score, and she said there's a lot of brass fanfares in this max and he said yes ma'am that's my protest against the against the iraq war she ah. said quite right and she folded them she closed the manuscript to put it down beside her chair she said now professor daniel tell me all about you so and then i was like oh goodness me <laughs> so it was just like it was one of those amazing occasions when and also we overstayed my welcome. She was meeting lots of ambassadors and stuff that day, and she we we uh, we spent at least half an hour talking with her, as it was a fifteen-minute interview. But she just wanted to talk, and we talked about Queen Victoria. We talked about because it was her Diamond Jubilee that year, and she, and Queen Victoria's diaries had been made public for the first time, and and then we talked about. Um, uh, the, the the Royal Academies and things, uh, the Royal Academy of Arts and we talked about the composers she'd known, we talked about, um, she asked me where I lived and I said I lived not far from Cambridge, she said it's, it's like Siberia in the winter isn't it, she said like like Cambridge itself, the wind comes straight from over from Siberia and I said yes it's really cold and uh, we just had this extraordinary sort of, but then At a certain point, you're with the Queen, and and that is, of course, hitting you around the face every 15 seconds. But then something rather extraordinary happened. Then I started to realize that, that there was something religious about this experience. I don't mean that I was having a religious Damascene conversion, but that she either believes it so strongly that it's true, or actually, there is something spiritual about truly spiritual about her um that that she is literally appointed by god she believes that to be the case i felt that it was it was um there was a radiance to her which was which i felt was spiritual and when i've met very special people um in the past like a uh, various different what could be religious figures or or you know special people i felt that too and i felt it about her and it is a remarkable thing i think she has a spiritual devotion and a spiritual practice which probably has effect affected her over the years and i i think it is remarkable and um you know i th- she this coming weekend we're actually um still having a four-day sort of celebration of you know, the following weekend of her platinum jubilee which i think there's genuine affection from her from a majority of people in Britain, actually. Not, not everybody. There's a lot of Republicans, too, but, you know, that's okay.
0: <laughs> what, a, what a just brilliant story. Thank you for sharing that. And before, before I get you out of here, I know I deviated from the questions a lot, but I've really been enjoying this conversation. Yeah, you're fine. Before yeah. I get you out of here, tell me about what it's like watching your daughter perform? Because this is incredible as well as a performer. You get to see her on stage tonight. You're headed tonight to Legally Blonde to see her, So how's that been, <laughs> seeing her as a performer?
1: Uh, well, it's, it's, it's been many, I've been watching my kids on stage for many years. The younger one is not a performer, although I have a feeling that he's starting to wonder whether he might be. But um, what's so incredible about, about this is that Ali, until two and a half years ago, was presenting as male. And then in March 2020, she made the realization with herself and told her mother and I that she is a woman. So she has done a chemical transition and is, has a, a much more female uh, body now and is, is dressed full-time. as She is a woman. And she's mentally a woman. She's physically a woman. But she's still a very tall person but she's uh, you could describe her as a suspiciously tall woman (laughs) but so seeing her on stage now is and knowing what she's been through to to actually achieve what she's doing and how successful she's being on stage even with being a trans performer because there is still a lot of stigma um the thing is i what's so incredible is and it's so unbelievably moving is to realize that she the authenticity with which she lives her life now has has made her an even greater artist than she was and it's profoundly moving as her father to understand and to see in such a clear lesson that authenticity and living authentically is the single most important thing you can do and when i when i hear people being um negative about trans people I just think they simply can't have had any experience of actually knowing them or, or, or talking to them or really understanding them in any way because it is, it is, it is the most beautiful thing to see someone living, living the truth. And um, so going to see her on stage, which is something I do as much as I can, is deeply, deeply moving. It always is incredible, even from when they're very young, seeing your kids... On stage, but she's—it's actually also her 28th birthday today. So, and this, so this has come comparatively late to her compared to some people. I think it's because I don't know why it is, but the the world has moved so fast in the last perhaps three four years towards um, uh, trans acceptance and towards trans people being um, really thought of and seen seen. That it is, it is a new world, and I mean, we. She has an, a memory of when I was, when she was young, of um of me asking her whether I thought she was a girl, which I found amazing, and and uh, she said, no, I don't think so, and I said, and she said, if I was, would it be okay? I said, darling, anything you are is okay with me. Of course, it would be okay. She said, thanks, and Went back to playing with whatever she was playing with, um, and I used she because she says that she identifies herself as female now from the first moment she became aware of gender so even though she hadn't been through any kind of transition age three that's how i refer to her the pronouns um one of the things people get very caught up on but once you get used to it it's fine but actually it's just it's just crucial for for people non-binary and trans people to get it right so i think it's one of the small things that we can do is to get people's pronouns right right don't
0: you think i 100 agree and uh pass along my pass along happy birthday to her from me as well and i, I mean, thank you i will do thank you so much yeah <laughs> what a what a lovely lovely conversation this was this was fantastic I, and you're a great it's so nice to talk to you <laughs> i love your personality as well this has been i'm really thrilled to have you and honoring just a- thank you thank you
1: well i mean it's great i think you know, one of the great things that a musician can, one of the great privileges is that we do get to travel. And, um, you know, it's it's astonishing where you can find yourself feeling at home. I felt more at home on the Japanese island of Kitakushu um, than anywhere else I've ever been in, in, on the planet. And when I left there, I had a sort of pain. And, and um, various different psychics have told me I've got I mean, I've got um, past lives there. (laughs) but um, And then again, I found myself feeling most at home, again, in Perth in Australia. But that's partly because it's such a beautiful place. It's also because just when you think you can't stand the heat anymore, they have this amazing cool, the Fremantle doctor that comes through the town um, and just cools everything off a bit about half past three in the afternoon. Amazing thing. Australia's out of of this world, isn't it? Anyway, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you for ringing enjoy the rest of your night but thank you we'll talk i again. will too thanks bye now bye-bye
0: thank you thank you thank you for listening much appreciation to nicholas wasn't he fantastic give him a follow on social media and to stay up to date with his life you can also visit his website nicholasdaniel.co.uk. everyone has a story each person a scholar thank you for listening fill up that passport i'll see you on the road a bientôt.